As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Today's episode is titled The Storming of the Bastille, and it really needs no introduction. This episode will be one of fear, one of bloodshed, one of revolution. It will also be one of much historical debate. So without further ado, let us begin the besiegement of a prison which is still celebrated today. Let us commence the storming of the Bastille. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 12, The Storming of the Bastille. Jacques Necker sat on a wall. Jacques Necker had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Paris together again. When news of Necker's dismissal hit Paris, the city descended into the dark depths of chaos. Abbeys were sacked, custom posts were looted, prisons were liberated, armories were plundered. Louis reigned in Versailles, but chaos reigned in Paris. At least, chaos was how the city's middle classes interpreted the pillaged buildings and drunken banditry. Unsurprisingly, such an archaic environment fostered one of humanity's most powerful emotions. Fear. Fear not only from the impending royal coup amassing outside the city's walls, but also of the popular revolt amassing within them. Fear was the reason that the educated elite of Paris had not been sitting idly by since Camille de Malat mobilised the city's masses in his glorious speech in the Palais Royal. Fear was the reason that decisive measures were taken to prevent the city's temporary chaos from becoming permanent anarchy. Far from sitting on the sidelines, the bourgeoisie had been busily using the power vacuum initiated by Necker's dismissal to create institutions which would define the coming revolution. More importantly though, institutions which they hoped would restore order to the city of Paris and protect them from both the palace and the slums. Introducing the electors of Paris. The electors were a 407-member body, which had been created for the purpose of electing individuals to represent Paris at the Estates General. Elections for the Third Estates delegates had occurred in two stages, and it was this body who finally nominated the Parisian delegation for Versailles. After the election, however, the body had continued to meet. Instead of disbanding and allowing the city's representatives to be the sole voice of the Parisian people, the electors acted almost as a lobby group, seeking to remind their deputies of the people's will. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the people's will propagated by the body was often quite more radical than the legitimate centre of public opinion. But then again, when has the people's will ever reflected, well, the people's genuine will? It's kind of like when someone describes a place as God's country. 
God's country tends to be anything but. But we digress. The body had a quite progressive tone, and this was due to the large number of radicals who comprised its membership. The power vacuum created by Necker's dismissal gave these progressives an opportunity to further their radical agenda. In an environment characterised by no one neither possessing nor obeying authority, the electors seized it for themselves. In an effort to maintain public order, the body unilaterally declared itself to be the municipal government of Paris on the 12th of July. Having installed itself as the city government, with no royal permission or authority to do so, the body then decreed the creation of a city militia. Soon to be known as the National Guard, it was envisioned that if each of the city's 60 districts provided 800 men, a force of 48,000 militiamen could be at the disposal of the electors. This force could be used to resist the royalist soldiers entering the city, as well as resist the marauding lower classes already within it. Historians still debate just what force the electors feared more, the impending terror of the king's men, or the already existing terror of the king's people. Far from focusing on royal troops, Jean Bailly, the first president of the National Assembly, the leader of the tennis court oath, and the future mayor of Paris, indicated it was the latter. The influential revolutionary leader stated, Paris ran the risk of being pillaged, and was only saved from the marauders by the National Guard. Regardless of whatever evil the electors and the middle class feared more, Paris had a new government and a new defence force. Necker's dismissal had triggered a municipal revolution within the city, a fact that I very much doubt featured in the plans of the royalist counter-revolutionary plotters in Versailles. Having usurped power for themselves, the electors now stood alongside the National Assembly. Both were rogue, unilaterally declared bodies which lacked royal support. Only the successful resistance of royal troops could protect both infantile institutions from being smothered in the crib of liberty. The result was that the Parisians doubled down on revolt. From the Hotel de Ville, the city's town hall, the electors began to take measures to secure the safety of Paris. With the militia being raised, the electors posted militiamen and defected French guard troops to banks, grain stores and other key strategic locations in an effort to maintain public order. Barricades were erected at strategic entrances to the city, as were other defensive positions. Paris readied herself for conflict. The electors in the Hotel de Ville weren't the only ones making strategic decisions on troop deployments and defences, however. Inside the city, the royalist governor of the invalid began to take precautionary measures against both the mob and its new self-declared city government. On the 13th, the governor realised he may soon be targeted by the city's occupants. Why he might be targeted had everything to do with what was in his cellars. No, it wasn't cheese. It wasn't bread. It wasn't copies of a standalone Obi-Wan Kenobi movie starring Ewan McGregor. It wasn't any of these highly desirable things. The mob wanted in because the invalid possessed something of great importance and in great quantity. The invalid, which was more or less a hospital slash retirement home for the ill, injured and aged soldiers, had a large amount of muskets in its cellar. Some 32,000 of them. Having 32,000 muskets is slightly problematic when you're isolated in a revolting city. A city with a mob 
and a new municipal government who are both keen on defending themselves from a crackdown that your side is about to conduct. Might as well put a nice sirloin steak in your back pocket and jump into a tank full of sharks. With 3,000 members of the French Guard defecting to the people's cause on that same day, the governor enjoyed a delicious combination of a giant target on his back and no reinforcement from government troops. Isolated from support and with limited time, the governor prepared for an assault by ordering his troops to undertake a very specific task. He ordered his troops to start unscrewing the hammers of the muskets in the invalid armoury. Unscrewing the hammers rendered the muskets useless. It's perhaps not as fast as a bonfire, but hell, it would do. The idea was that the governor would deny the masses the weapons that they were seeking. For his men, however, this order was unpalatable. Comprised primarily of old veterans, his troops were more inclined to aid the people of Paris that they lived amongst, and their newly installed city government. In fact, while they remained physically with the governor, mentally they had already defected. In the first six hours of their task, roughly 20 of the 32,000 weapons had been disabled. That's right, 20 disabled muskets in six hours. At that rate, it would have taken them 400 days to disable the weapons stored in the cellars of the invalid. In life, I try not to identify conspiracy when inaction is probably driven by incompetence instead. But in this case, I'm pretty sure it's not incompetence. It's conspiracy. The idleness of the invalid defenders allowed the Crown to successfully acquire tens of thousands of muskets. The invalid was broken into the next morning on the 14th, and the deposit of weapons was more than enough to equip the majority of the new city militia. More importantly, it was enough to defend the city from the pending royal coup. Getting your hands on muskets was relatively easy for anyone watching the commotion. In fact, easy doesn't go far enough. Two servants of the British ambassador had gone to observe the event and found themselves with muskets by the end, the guns having been thrusted into their hands by the mob. Imagine that. You go for a show which attacks big government and get a free gun in the gift bag. It's an NRA member's wet dream. Anyway, we digress. Muskets were one thing, but gunpowder was quite another. Despite being equipped with arms, the mob had little gunpowder to fire them. That's today's equivalent of having a machine gun without any bullets or a lightsaber without the high ground. Sure, the mob could have used the muskets to beat someone to death, but that's not really the most efficient way to use them. Furthermore, beating someone to death with a cannon is fairly impractical unless you're the Hulk. And while I haven't mentioned it, and while they obviously don't have a Hulk, the mob does now have cannon, half a dozen or so, thanks to what they acquired in the invalid. The result of all of this was that the hungry, armed, and angry masses needed powder, and so they went to where the powder was, the famous Bastille. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. 
Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. We arrive at the center stage of this grand event, the Bastille. Originally constructed in the latter half of the 14th century, the Bastille was a distinctive feature on the Parisian skyline. The fortress was comprised of eight towers of uneven height. The tallest was just more than 70 feet, or about 20 meters. Pretty sizable towers, yes, but certainly not as big as paintings and depictions made them look in the glorified propaganda after its fall. The walls were five to eight feet thick, skirted by a waterless moat, and manned by roughly 100 men. Aiding the defenders was 18 eight-pounder cannons and 12 smaller rampart guns. Despite these defences, however, the fortress had long stopped keeping people out, in particular the pesky English. Instead, For nearly 400 years, the Bastille had been keeping people in, this time the pesky French. Charles VI converted the Bastille into a state prison in the early 15th century, and under the Bourbons, the prison was primarily used for housing those arrested by letters de cachet. What this meant was that the Bastille housed those who were incarcerated by the arbitrary will of the king and not under common law. General inhabitants included traitors, heretics, writers and delinquents. At one point in time, one such delinquent was the now popular champion of the Third Estate, the Comte de Mirabeau. The extrajudicial nature of the arrests of the Bastille's prisoners fueled the rumours which surrounded the fortress. The Bastille dominated the imaginations of Parisians, even if it didn't truly dominate its skyline. It was said that the jailers didn't know their prisoners' names, that the most barbaric torture occurred regularly, that one would be seized in the middle of the night without warning, not even given a chance to say goodbye to loved ones. Actually, that last one did occur, but that's not where I'm going with all of this. The Tower of Paris could be found in the darker realms of the popular imagination, and the lines between myth and reality, well, they were muddled, to say the least. In reality, the Parisian Azkaban held just seven prisoners at the time of its downfall. Seven. Whoop-dee-doo, Basil. But had you asked the common person who lived in the shadows of the eerie prison, seven prisoners would have not been their assumption at the number of helpless souls contained inside. Seven prisoners would have been unbelievable. An equally unbelievable fact would have been that many prisoners were allowed to furnish their rooms with personal effects like wardrobes, desks, portraits, and even be accompanied by their pet dog or cat. The idea that prisoners inside would have all had a bed, curtains, and either a stove or chimney was completely unbelievable, let alone the fact that Bingo and Garfield were allowed inside to accompany their owners. The fact of the matter was that the Bastille was much nicer than many of the other prisons in France in 1789. In fact, 
it was a five-star resort with a free buffet and a bar compared to some of the prisons established by the autocratic regimes of the 20th century. Truth, however, is what people believe, and thanks to a vast array of prison literature and exaggerated and outright fictitious recounts of former guests, the average Parisian believed the Bastille to be a place of immeasurable cruelty. This belief was fueled by the fact that letters de cachet were indeed tyrannical, arbitrary and extrajudicial. Yet, once the letters de cachet had delivered an unfortunate soul to the Bastille, the myths, legends and rumours surrounding the horrors inside were exactly that. Myths, legends and rumours. There was a disconnect between the public image and the private reality. In short, the Bastille was not the hellhole that it was thought to be. Symbolically, the Bastille may well have served as a potent symbol of royal absolutism and despotic tyranny. Functionally, however, it wasn't any worse than many prisons before or since. We digress, however, because we don't actually care about the prisoners within the prison, and we'll talk about the Bastille's symbolism later. Instead, what we care about is gunpowder. The Bastille was home to some much-needed gunpowder. 250 barrels of powder, to be precise. For a city convinced a royalist attack was days, if not hours, away, those barrels were not a luxury. They were a requirement for the successful defence of the city. Furthermore, the Bastille's cannons were capable of flattening nearby suburbs should a royal crackdown commence. The Bastille had to be neutralised and its contents repurposed for the protection of Paris. At 10 in the morning, on Tuesday the 14th of July 1789, a crowd of roughly 900 Parisians had gathered outside the Bastille demanding the prison turn over its gunpowder and withdraw its guns from the ramparts. A delegation of electors promptly arrived from the newly formed city government to help negotiate with the Bastille's governor. That governor was Bernard-René de Lenay, who had been born in the Bastille, his father having been his predecessor as the prison's commander. On face value, Delaunay may not have been in a weak position, but he actually was. He held roughly 250 barrels of powder, or roughly 30,000 pounds, or 13,500 kilos of the stuff. More than enough for his cannon. Furthermore, defensive preparations had been conducted, including strengthening the drawbridge and stockpiling paving stones. Despite these advantages, the Bastille was still in a weak position. Critically, the Bastille had no water supply and only enough rations for two days. And perhaps most importantly, the Bastille was occupied by unreliable men. Some of Delaunay's men weren't inclined to fire on the common people, sharing the same sympathies which had fostered inaction and defection amongst the French guards and the defenders of the invalid. However, even if Delaunay's men had all been well disciplined, my original statement would still stand. The Bastille's most unreliable defender was debatably Delaunay himself. The governor was loyal to the royalist cause, but not to the growth mindset. He was, in a word, incompetent. Lieutenant Louis de Fou was a member of a small detachment of Swiss guards stationed in the fortress, and he described the governor as being without much knowledge of military affairs, without experience, and without much courage. According to Lieutenant de Fleu, whose Swiss guards made up about a third of the defending force of 100, Governor de Lenay would be regularly spooked by shadows at night when trees swayed in the wind. From the day of my arrival, I learnt to know this man, 
by the meaningless preparations he made for the defence of his post, and by his continual anxiety and irresolution, I saw clearly that we should be ill-commanded if we were attacked. He was so overcome with terror that at night he took for enemies the shadows of trees and other surrounding objects. I cannot find it anything but ironic that the governor of the dark, sinister, creepy, haunted, ghostly prison in the middle of Paris was afraid of the dark. One can only imagine how scared he must have been as the crowd amassed below on the 14th of July. The crowd below was indeed growing. By 12.30pm, the mob outside the Bastille had swelled to a couple of thousand people. Many of the newcomers had just come from the invalid with their freshly acquired muskets in hand. It's at this point in time that trouble starts to brew. By 12.30, the two electors acting as delegates for the Hotel de Ville had been inside the Bastille for more than a couple of hours. The crowd began to believe that something had gone wrong. Instead of negotiating with the governor, the mob began to believe that the delegation had been taken hostage. Worse still, that the hostages were being subjected to the horrific torture and brutalities the Bastille was famous for delivering. The likely unpleasant fate of the delegation was seemingly confirmed when the Bastille's cannons were withdrawn from the edges of the wall. The cannons were being loaded, or so the crowd thought. This whole day can be characterised by incorrect assumptions and rash conclusions. In reality, the guns were being withdrawn as per the negotiated agreement between the delegation of the electors and Governor de Lanay. The crowd's two original demands were, after all, one, hand over the powder, and two, withdraw the guns. But the crowd was now suspicious of de Lanay. Remember, this is an environment where pretty much everything is a reactionary, counter-revolutionary conspiracy. From impending violent crackdown to sky-high bread prices, and so the demands of the mob stiffened. A second delegation was sent inside the Bastille to confirm the guns were not being loaded, but more importantly, to make a third demand. Surrender the Bastille and permit the admission of a unit of the city's militia. Delaunay balked at this third requirement. Without orders from the king, such an occupation was unquestionable, and the electors returned to the Hotel de Ville to discuss the situation with their colleagues. There's an old saying, when the cat's away, the mice come out to play. Well, while the electors were busy formulating a coherent and probably peaceful resolution back at the Hotel de Ville, individuals within the mob took matters into their own hands. The Bastille may have been surrounded by a moat, but it was also surrounded at times by buildings. The fortress prison was in the heart of Paris, after all. And one such building was a lovely little perfume shop. This perfume shop happened to be quite close to the gate of the inner courtyard of the Bastille, and so when a small group of men climbed onto the shop's roof, they were soon able to get into the inner courtyard, cut the drawbridge chains, and let the angry, hungry, musket-holding mob inside. Despite not a single shot being fired, the death toll at this point in time already stood at one. Almost like a scene from a Hollywood movie, the drawbridge fell onto a would-be assailant and crushed him instantly under its weight. Another was severely injured but lucky enough to survive. The death toll, however, at this point in time began to climb, and climb quickly. As the mob rushed inside the inner courtyard, they were greeted by yet another gate. Surrounded by thick walls and unable to retreat, there was nowhere to go. The people were fish in a Bastille barrel. 
Who shot first was and is disputed, and it's largely irrelevant. What matters is that the firing began. To make matters worse, the mob didn't know it was some of their own who had opened the gate. In an environment of perpetual conspiracy, it was believed that Governor Delaunay had set a trap. It was immediately assumed that the evil governor had lowered the bridge to deliberately cramp innocent Parisian souls inside the inner courtyard, only so that they could be mowed down by his gunners. Delaunay had thus joined the ranks of the Queen and the Comte d'Artois as one of the evil counter-revolutionary monsters in the collective minds of Paris. An evil, sinister, monstrous counter-revolutionary. One who was, don't forget, afraid of the dark. Over the next couple of hours, the assault on the fortress by the mob was largely ineffectual. The Bastille's thick walls meant that even though the assailants had some cannon, their cannonballs simply bounced off harmlessly. With cannon fire being heard from the Hotel de Ville, the electors had tried to send more delegations to broker a peace. But the sheer chaos of the environment, combined with the distrust from both sides, made any brokered agreement impossible. The mob believed Delaunay had orchestrated a scheme to kill their neighbours and loved ones, while Delaunay distrusted the city government and the crowd, feeling that he had been attacked despite signalling his clear intention to not pose a threat to the city and agreeing to the mob's initial demands. At 3.30 in the afternoon, the initiative began to swing in favour of the mob. The crowd had swelled further as the besiegement continued, but more importantly, two veterans of the American Revolutionary War arrived on the scene and with them some additional units of French guards who had defected in the previous days and hours. Putting themselves in immense personal danger, Peter Ullin, a non-commissioned officer in the French guards, and Lieutenant Jacob Illy of the Queen's Regiment of Infantry coordinated the defected soldiers, city militia, the cannons, the mob, well, let's just say they coordinated everybody, and with their leadership developed a capable besieging force. Importantly, the group managed to bring the cannons into the inner courtyard of the Bastille. The assailants now aimed the cannon not at the walls, but at the much weaker inner gate, the last barrier between the mob and the defenders inside. I want to take a moment to touch on just exactly what Ulin, Ali and their men had just done. You've got to imagine the environment they were in. It's essentially a war zone. As they used every ounce of their strength to move these cannons... Bleeding, crying, wounded individuals would have been retreating past them. Blood on their clothes, limbs missing, their cries of agony and pain would have been heard all around. Yet despite the stream of retreating civilians from the conflict ahead, these men pushed forward. As they entered the courtyard, thick smoke blocked their ability to observe their surroundings. The smoke was coming from carts of hay which had been deliberately set alight to provide the assailants with a smokescreen cover. These carts, however, were now blocking their ability to move the cannons up into offensive positions, so Ulan, Ili, and other members had no choice but to completely expose themselves and heroically push these burning carts out of the way. While clearing a path for the cannons, they were being shot at, they were inhaling thick smoke, and they were shifting corpses from their path. Corpses which represented the full breadth of the Parisian Third Estate, but particularly the city's working class. According to official records, the besieging force was comprised of a wide assortment of individuals, which I suppose is really unsurprising considering that as many as 8,000 participated in the storming of the Bastille in some way or another. Officially, the besiegers included 28 cobblers, 41 locksmiths, 10 hairdressers, 11 wine merchants, 9 tailors, 6 gardeners, 7 stonemasons, 9 jewellers and even a brewery owner, 
The youngest assailant was a boy of eight, and the oldest was a man aged 72. And even a laundress helped aid the assault. I want you to picture these kinds of people dead on the ground as Ulan and his men wield their cannons. These people offering suppressive fire from the inner courtyard as Illy and his men move the flaming carts of hay out of the way. The assault was truly comprised of people from all parts of the Third Estate, but in particular the workers, the artisans, the labourers, the sans-culottes. I didn't just list 15 bankers and 18 lawyers and 9 industrialists and 32 bureaucrats. The coming bourgeois revolution was being skewered by non-bourgeois Parisians. While currently acting in unison, the future division of these groups would have important consequences. After many hours had passed since the initial shots, the cannons had finally been brought up into the inner courtyard of the Bastille. Aimed at the weaker inner gate, all that was required was to blow it apart, find a way over another small moat, and take the Bastille. While some historians argue that even at this point of time, the Bastille could have easily defended herself, they're kind of missing the point. Governor de Lanay was not a man to use a whiff of grape shot, as historian Justin McCarthy put it. Before the cannons were let loose, a white handkerchief appeared from the Bastille. Governor de Lanay had resigned himself to defeat. A defeat in a battle that he never wanted to fight. His troops too were done defending what was for them an underutilised prison. A prison with seven not-so-important people in it. They had fought a battle they too had wished not to fight, and they were no longer eager to die defending a building they had no great affection for. Through a hole in the gate next to the drawbridge, a note was passed to the assailants, who were balancing along planks of wood over the moat to try to reach it. Once acquired, the note read, We have 20,000 pounds of powder. We shall blow up the garrison and the whole neighbourhood unless you accept our capitulation. From the Bastille at five in the evening, July 14th, 1789, Lenay. Governor de Lenay's bluff was called. The crowd appeared to refuse, yelling, no capitulation, while Ulan looked as if he was about to unleash the cannons upon the gate. Delaunay cast aside his ultimatum and yielded. Instead of blowing the Bastille sky high and destroying the surrounding neighbourhood and people along with it, he opened the gates and the crowd rushed in. At this point in time, it's safe to say that no one knew how the crowd would react. There will be points of time in this revolution, such as the September massacres, where so many innocents will perish due to the destructive indulgences of mob mentality. Given the environment, given the fact that the mob believed Delaunay laid a trap for them, given the fact that the governor was part of a royal conspiracy in their minds, the response from the crowd was surprisingly measured. Three defenders were killed along with three of the governor's staff, but the majority of the defending force was spared immediate slaughter. Delaunay, now in custody, was led back to the Hotel de Ville by Lieutenant Ely, who, in a great piece of theatre, had impaled Delaunay's surrender note on the tip of his sword. Delaunay, however, would not make it to the city government. Abused by the mob repeatedly, Delaunay snapped and kicked an unemployed cook by the name of Desnoe in the testicles. Shouting in rage, Quite understandably, Desnoe and the crowd turned ravenous, and soon swords and bayonets pierced the governor's flesh while pistols were shot at point-blank range in his quickly lifeless corpse. 
Desnu then used a sword to cut the governor's head off, but failing to complete the task easily, had to finish the job with a pocket knife and only after receiving some liquid courage in the form of brandy. With his head now on a pike, the death of Delaunay brings an end to the story of the fall of the Bastille. The Tower of Paris had fallen, and so had its governor. But Delaunay's demise did not end the day's significance or its ramifications. By November, most of the Bastille would be demolished. Likewise, by the end of November, most of the old regime would be demolished too. The king would be forcibly moved to Paris. The privileges of the two privileged daughters would be abolished, and the revolutionaries within the National Assembly would be factionalised, beginning the era of entrenched ideological politics that crippled this revolution. Historian Charlie Matthews simply and succinctly states that The fall of the Bastille was the symbol of the fall of Bourbon absolutism, the sign of the rise of a nation. That nation that will rise will be born of hope, liberty and peace. Unfortunately for many, it develops into one of terror and misery. Delaunay may have been the first to lose his head for the supposed counter-revolutionary conspiracy, but he would not be the last. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Before we end our little Netflix special on the old regime's toughest prisons, I want to dive into one of the many historical debates surrounding the prison's downfall. This is grey history after all. As historian Matthews put it so well, the fall of the Bastille was a symbol for the fall of Bourbon absolutism. On that point, pretty much everyone agrees. What there is significant division of opinion on, however, is whether or not the Bastille symbolised Bourbon absolutism before or only after its fall. 
there is stark disagreement about whether or not the Bastille was already symbolically significant at the time of its fall, or if it only became a symbol for the old regime after revolutionary propaganda inflated its downfall as one which liberated France and gave birth to the new order. In the corner of it wasn't such a huge symbol of absolutism initially are many conservative and revisionist historians. One such historian is Simon Sharma. Sharma argues that the fall of the Bastille wasn't a symbol of tyranny or despotism at the time of its capitulation. The neglected prison, which was scheduled for demolition, only became such a prominent symbol after its demise. The Bastille, then, was much more important in its afterlife than it ever had been as a working institution of state. It gave a shape and an image to all the vices against which the revolution defined itself. Transfigured from a nearly empty, thinly manned anachronism into the seat of beast despotism, it incorporated all those rejoicing at its capture as the members of the new community of the nation. Participants, witnesses, celebrants, they were all friends of humanity, bringers of light into the cradle of darkness. For Sharma and those who agree with him, the prison, holding only seven prisoners at the time, was not a notable symbol of royal absolutism. If it was, why was this symbolic castle scheduled for demolition? Why was it so under-resourced and undermanned? To these historians, it became a symbol of tyranny only in its afterlife. A long list of historians disagree, however. Historian Justin McCarthy, writing 100 years after the fall of the Bastille, forcibly dismissed the case that the Bastille held anything but huge symbolic significance at the time of its fall. Men have not been wanting, we have seen, who try to minimise its importance, to diminish its historic dignity. They urge that the Bastille, at the time of its fall, was a place of no importance. They say it had ceased to be the terror house of political prisoners. They maintain it was not, in any military sense, taken at all. They protest that the whole episode was an absurd blunder which attached to the Bastille an importance that it had long outdated and which gave its captors a burlesque air of pseudo-heroism. They even assert that it was a crime, the herald of a long catalogue of crimes. There is little or nothing to be said for such arguments. It was not the captors of the Bastille who were responsible for the blunders and the bloodshed of the revolution. It was the condition of things which made the capture of the Bastille so momentous. The very fact that at the time, people of all parties thought it was so momentous is enough to prove the case. Even if the Bastille itself had ceased to terrify, it still represented the old, terrific idea. It was a very strong argument in stone in favour of the feudal system, and all the feudal system meant. It had long been the dread and the curse of Paris, the merciless answer to all freedom of thought, of word, of deed. If the first wave of the rising tide of democracy beat against it and overwhelmed it, it was not for nothing. Its mighty keep, its eight portentous towers, were the solid, visible presentment of all that was worse in the old order of things. It was a symbol, and symbols are the most potent influences in the struggles of political forces. But it was not merely a symbol. It still held prisoners. It was still ready to hold prisoners. Its guns were a standing menace to Paris. If we were to imagine a London mob of today besieging the Tower of London, the event would certainly have little historic dignity or importance. Long generations have gone by since the Tower of London represented any despotic system or had any political significance or symbolism whatsoever. But every man who attacked the Bastille upon that midsummer day, 100 years ago, 
looked upon the Bastille as the petrification of the old order and the old despotism. The youngest could remember how it had been used for the basest political purposes, how it had been employed to stifle freedom. It was hated. It was justly hated. It was natural and significant that the first popular stroke should be levelled against it. Its fall is an event of moment in the history of man, a day of thanksgiving in the history of civilization. Historian Charlia Matthews agrees with McCarthy completely. To prove the point, Matthews focuses not on how the French reacted to the news of the Bastille's demise, but on how other Europeans reacted to it. The fall of the Bastille was something more than the fall of a disused but hated prison. If one will go to the Museum Carle in Paris, he will see a host of mementos which testify to something more than a passing delirium. There are locks from the Bastille, doors from the Bastille, models of the Bastille made from its own masonry, Bastille fans, handkerchiefs, porcelains, pictures. And if one will read the memoirs of the time, he will find all Europe celebrating the event. Englishmen orating, Russians hugging one another, Germans weeping for joy. I've never actually seen a German weep for joy, so you know it's got to be good. The explanation of all this enthusiasm lies in this. The fall of the Bastille was the symbol of the fall of Bourbon absolutism, the sign of the rise of a nation. For this reason, it is that the 14th of July has been added to the list of national holidays. Whether or not the Bastille was a symbol of royal absolutism at the time of its fall is a matter for historic debate. It's grey history. I believe it was, but I certainly disagree with historian McCarthy that it was natural that the first popular stroke be set against the Bastille. In my own view, I think it's outrageous to suggest that the Bastille was besieged for any other reason than military necessity. The Bastille held powder, and therefore it held the means in which Paris could protect herself. Symbolism was not a consideration in its assault. Survival was. Royal despotism aside, the fall of the Bastille was certainly seen at the time as a symbol for the fall of government and order. After the Great Siege came the Great Fear. In the aftermath of the fall of the Bastille, large sections of the countryside descended into anarchy, into chaos, into a period of French history known as the Great Fear. By the time the Great Fear faded away in August 1789, the nation of France had undergone nothing less than a complete and utter revolution. The Great Fear was accompanied by great achievements, achievements which are still impacting Western societies to this day. Thank you for listening to episode 12, The Storming of the Bastille. The great prison has fallen. The great symbol of royal despotism has ceased to terrify. Yet great events would continue to unfold. In the aftermath of the Bastille's capitulation, a general panic will seize the nation in an event known as the Great Fear. The Great Fear will cause hysteria, alarm, horror, paranoia, but it will also enable the National Assembly, to carry out great achievements. Achievements which have impacted democratic nations for hundreds of years. Achievements which still impact those societies today. The storming of the Bastille was indeed a great event, but it was by no means the last great event to occur in the summer of 1789. Before you go, 
If you've enjoyed today's episode of Grey History, if you're a fan, if you'd like to dabble in some more, then there is something you can do to help make sure that that takes place. Spread the word. If you know someone who you think might be interested in a history podcast that explores the grey, please tell them about Grey History. I need all the help I can get, so if you're enjoying the show, please do spread the message that history isn't black and white. Thank you for listening, and henceforth, Grey History will be targeting a fortnightly release. So I'll see you all in two weeks to discuss the infamous Great Fear and the famous Great Achievements which accompany it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.